welcome back to the emdocs.net podcast. I'm Britt Long, and I'm joined by Manny Singh. Today, we talk about wound laceration, management pearls and pitfalls in the ED. The evaluation and treatment of acute injuries accounts for millions of ED visits each year, where lacerations and other acute wounds are an important subset accounting for 9 million seen yearly. These wounds require physical evaluation for extent of injury, radiography evaluation for secondary injury, and irrigation exploration for the wound cleansing with the removal of foreign body and debris. Special considerations, such as location and extent of injury, should be given to determine the optimal closure type and timing. Patients are at risk for infection, severe scarring, decreased mobility or diminished function, or prolonged pain if the emergency physician does not provide the proper initial treatment. Before we go any further, Britt, what are some key questions with every wounds we should ask ourselves? First, what emergent diagnosis should you consider in this patient? Second, what's the neurovascular status? Third, what additional diagnostic testing should be considered in a wound close to a joint? What are some factors that make the wound high risk for infection? And is the tetanus up to date? And finally, could a foreign body be present? The reason we close wounds is that we need to obtain a functional imitation of the body's innate skin barrier for hemostasis and prevention of infection. The pathway to healing occurs in a sequential fashion, first with a hemostatic phase, which includes platelet aggregation and formation of a clot, next a proliferative phase with leukocytes, and finally a maturation or modeling phase that gradually improves wound tensile strength and integrity. Infections, foreign bodies, poor vascular supply, and large gaps can delay or prevent proper wound healing. Evaluating the history of a wound is an important part of our initial evaluation. We have to consider factors such as mechanism of injury, location, and length of injury, as well as the degree of contamination, time since injury, tetanus vaccination status, and any neurovascular musculoskeletal deficits. The history helps determine whether imaging is necessary, may be either x-ray, CT, or ultrasound. The history can also help determine the extent of irrigation or debridement required, the utility of antibiotics, and the need for specialist evaluation. If the mechanism of injury, location, depth, or deficits in movement or sensation is concerning for a non-visualized retained foreign body, bone involvement, joint involvement, compartment syndrome, or neurovascular injury, then advanced imaging would be the most useful to ensure full evaluation of the extent of injury. Plain radiographs can identify metallic or other radiodense foreign bodies, determine if there is any underlying bony cortex involvement or overt fracture, and can also diagnose an open joint if intraarticular air is seen. Ultrasound, either formal or point of care, can also be useful in identification of retained foreign bodies by providing information on depth, location, and orientation relative to the probe. A CT scan will allow for the most detailed evaluation, giving a three-dimensional assessment that can visualize foreign bodies, bone injuries, joint involvement, vascular injuries, and muscle disruptions that need to be repaired. Imaging modalities, however, cannot diagnose compartment syndrome, and the emergency physicians should keep this possibility on their differential during initial and repeat evaluations. Britt, what are some other questions we should ask in our history? Obtain tetanus vaccination history and update as needed. For large contaminated wounds, ensure the patient has had at least three prior doses and one within the last five years. If the patient has a contaminated wound and has not yet had three doses, they need tetanus immunoglobulin in addition to an updated tetanus toxoid vaccine. Another important thing to consider is infection risk stratification, which is largely determined by a patient's comorbid medical conditions, the level of vascular supply to the wounds, and bacterial colonization of the skin. 
immunocompromised patients, especially those in biologic agents or chemotherapy, chronic steroid use, and diabetics are at higher risk for infection and poor wound healing. Patients with peripheral vascular disease also have an elevated risk of infection, as a healthy blood supply is needed to prevent infection. Injuries to moist body areas and extremities should increase your concern for infection. When it comes to cleaning wounds, let's discuss the why, the how, and the when. So why should we clean wounds? Wounds that present to the ED are dirty by definition, not the same clean incisions that surgeons often manage in the operating room. Removal of gross contamination of dirt, debris, foreign bodies, as well as bacterial load begins with wound irrigation. Next, how do we go about cleaning our wound? We'll start with wiping away any visible contamination with a dampened cloth to be able to visualize the wound edges appropriately. Next, let's irrigate the wound, but with what? Sterile water or tap water? A recent RCT of over 600 patients in the ER setting showed no statistical difference between infection rates with sterile saline wound irrigation compared to tap water irrigation. This double-blinded study controlled for important factors. While a small study with an ultimate sample says it's 625 patients, it is the largest study to date. Tap water is a safe option for wound irrigation. It should be considered if cost or availability of sterile saline is an issue. Pressure used to irrigate a wound has implications beyond cleaning and can lead to damage of the wound bed, wound edges, or vascular supply, which can inhibit proper healing. A multitude of opinions exist to describe the optimal pressure for irrigation, but varied data results are available for consideration. A common rule seen is to aim for pressures of approximately 5 to 13 psi, which is the pressure to break the adhesion between bacteria and surfaces. Multiple techniques have been described to obtain this pressure, including irrigation caps attached to bottles or syringes, 18 to 19 gauge angiocats attached to 30 to 50 cc syringes, or simply running the wound under tap water from the sink. There is no evidence-based consensus on how to achieve optimal pressures during irrigation, so local practice habits should be taken into consideration. The volume of irrigation is another debated topic, but is generally better agreed upon. The minimum recommendation is about 50 to 100 cc of solution per 1 centimeter of water. Adjust the amount of solution used based on the amount of contamination as necessary. Lastly, when should we irrigate wounds? The earlier you can irrigate the wound, the better. Ideally, irrigation is performed after anesthetizing to decrease pain and improve ability to fully explore the wound. Do not let a delayed presentation to treatment prevent full irrigation exploration. There are several types of closures. Primary is the most common type of closure. This is the preferred method for most acute lacerations that can be cleaned appropriately to optimize wound healing and prevent infection. This pretty much involves immediate fixation of the deep and dermal layers with sutures, staples, adhesive tape, or tissue adhesive. Delayed primary means a delay in wound closure to allow for evaluation at a later date. This is a good approach for wounds that are contaminated, infected, older than 24 hours, or devitalized. Devitalized wounds have areas of skin or tissue with compromised blood supply and are at higher risk of infection. Delayed primary involves wound packing with a return visit in three to five days after the wound has occurred, and at that time, decision to close. Secondary intention involves the least amount of action on your part, but requires a fair amount of patient education. Instead of closing the skin around debris or bacteria, healing from the inside out allows contaminants to escape as the wound heals. This type of closure does result in significant scar formation as the wound edges are not approximated. Keep this in mind when you're talking with the patient. What's next, Manny? Anesthesia is an equally important part of wound repair. 
Local anesthetics typically work by disrupting sensory nerve conduction. Typically, ester amide anesthetics are used, such as procaine and ester, or amides such as lidocaine and bupivacaine. Warming anesthetics to body temperatures can reduce the pain on injection. Other options for local anesthesia can include topical LET, which is a mixture of lidocaine, epinephrine, and tetracaine, Benadryl, or ketamine. LET is frequently used in children, but has applications in adults as well. LET, however, is not readily available and requires local compounding at some shops. Diphenhydramine is an option for local anesthesia, however, it is the least effective in terms of analgesia. Finally, local infiltration of ketamine has been shown to be as effective analgesia as bupivacaine. Britt, what are various ways we can close a wound? Each wound can be closed by a variety of methods. Let's discuss the pros and cons of each. Sutures provide the most amount of tensile strength and are necessary for gaping wounds and wounds near moving joints. Some sutures are non-absorbable and they require follow-up for removal. The suture varies based on the type, including non-absorbable and absorbable, duration, and tissue reactivity. The post has a great table listing all of these factors. Staples provide a fair amount of wound approximation and are quick. However, they can worsen scarring and they require follow-up for removal. Adhesive tape is quick, painless, and really good for skin tears. It typically falls off within five to 10 days and no follow-up is needed. The problem with tape is that it's low strength and it must remain dry, and it really can't be used on high tension areas or wounds. Tissue adhesive is quick, dissolves or falls off in five to 10 days with no follow-up. It is better for straight wounds and it should not be used on high tension wounds. Manny, let's dive into some specific pearls and pitfalls for laceration repairs, starting from the head and going to the extremities. Let's start with the scalp. You want to make sure you explore scalp wounds for any underlying skull fracture and consider a head CT based on the clinical picture and circumstances surrounding the injury. Large lacerations, blunt trauma, loss of consciousness, or current altered mental status are examples to consider a head CT. The easiest closure method are staples as it provides a rapid closure with good strength in an area with low cosmetic concern. Simple interrupted non-absorbable sutures can also be a consideration if time permits or if cosmesis is concerning such as hairless areas. When exploring scalp wounds, it is important to ensure the galea aponeurosis is intact and if not, repair it prior to superficial repair. The galea is the attachment of facial musculature and therefore has an important role in maintaining facial structure and symmetry, especially during facial expression. The closure is also needed to prevent the possible spread of infection through this potential space that is close to the skull. Kalia closure is best performed with either 3O or 4O absorbable sutures in a simple interrupted manner. Staples or sutures on the scalp should be removed in 10 to 14 days. Next let's look at the forehead. Deep wounds to this area require muscle repair to preserve function. This is best achieved with simple interrupted sutures using 3O or 4O absorbable sutures, followed by skin closure that can be done with simple interrupted 5O to 6O small sutures. Removal of the superficial sutures is done in 5 to 7 days. Next, let's go to the face and let's first start with the eyelids. Examine the eyelids carefully for involvement to the canthi, lacrimal system, tarsal plate, or lid margin, and any evidence of penetrating injury to the globe. If complex, where there's lacrimal involvement or ptosis present, consider ophthalmology consultation. Simple lacerations should be repaired with 6O or 7O non-absorbable sutures. Avoid adhesives in this area to prevent accidental eyelid closure or eyelash involvement. Suture removal in this area requires three to five days. Next, looking at our ears, these are our cartilage structures that are at high risk for hematoma formation, which can lead to strangulation of tissue and disfiguration. 
These are the cauliflower ears we see in our boxers, wrestlers, and MMA fighters. Close wounds with 6-0 non-absorbable sutures, ensuring coverage of all cartilage with skin, but avoiding placement of sutures directly into the cartilage. Applied pressure dressing to prevent hematoma formation by placing gauze behind the ear and wrapping gauze circumferentially around the head. There is a great EM Docs article for examples of compressive dressings linked in the post. Establish a wound check in 24 hours to reassess for hematoma formation and remove sutures in 5-7 to seven days. Going on to the lip, intraoral lesions do not need to be sutured unless they are larger than 1 cm or larger enough for food to get stuck into. For lesions that penetrate through outside to inside or full thickness, close the mucosal layer first with absorbable suture, followed by the muscular layer, and finally the skin. Involvement of the vermilion border should be the first approximated suture on the skin layer. This is an essential skill for emergency physicians when closing lip lacerations. Use 6 sutures to improve cosmesis and make sure you remove skin sutures in 5-7 to seven days. For the upper extremity, it's important to assess the injury at rest as well as properly evaluate motor and sensory nerve function, tendon function, and perfusion of the extremity distal to the wound during motion. Don't suture fistfight injuries. Provide prophylactic antibiotics if there are no signs of infection. If there are signs of infection, the patient needs IV antibiotics. For flexor tendon and volar injuries, these patients require a hand specialist for definitive repair, either consultation in the ER or follow-up within 24 hours, depending on your local institution. We often miss tendon injuries, especially partial tendon injuries, which can lead to decreased hand function if not appropriately identified. Clean the wound and suture the skin. If the tendon is not repaired immediately by a specialist, splint the wrist and MCPs with flexion and the PIPs and DIPs in extension and ensure timely follow-up with a hand surgeon. For extensor tendon or dorsal injuries, these can be repaired in the ED, but they do require follow-up with a hand specialist. Tendons should be repaired with a 4-0 or 5-0 non-absorbable suture with a figure of 8 stitch to bring the cut edges together, or they can be closely approximated with simple interrupted sutures. Splint the hand in functional position with wrist in slight extension, ulnar deviation, and the MCP, DIP, and PIPs in slight flexion for follow-up with the hand surgeon. Next, let's look at fingertips and nails. Amputations that involve the pulp or skin loss with no exposed bone require dressing changes only. Bone, joint, or tendon involvement require hand specialist referral with institutional-dependent practices for closure or reimplantation. Reimplantation needs immediate referral and proper protection of the amputated digit. Wrap the amputated digit in moist gauze and place in a plastic bag. Then place that bag in ice. However, you do not want to place the digit directly on the ice. If only the distal tip from the DIP onward is amputated, this usually will not be reimplanted and will require revision amputation. Revision amputations can be done in the ER by using a rongeur to clip the bone below skin level and closing the skin flap over the exposed bone. Prompt follow-up with a hand surgeon should be secured after this. Next, let's look at nail bed injuries, and let's first start with the subungal hematoma. Trepanate subungal hematomas that occupy over half the nail bed using an 18-gauge needle, cautery device, nail drill, or scalpel after proper anesthesia is obtained. If you're worried about a nail bed laceration, remove the nail if significant avulsion is present and repair the underlying laceration. Make sure you retain that nail and suture it back in place to keep the matrix open. You can also consider using a malleable metal covering, such as a suture cover, that is conformed to the nail bed. Lastly, let's talk about the leg and foot. Wounds to this area tend to be under high tension and require more advanced suture techniques to provide support and allow the skin to come back together. These techniques include the horizontal or 
vertical mattress sutures or deep dermal sutures. They are helpful for lacerations that are deep and involve muscles. The skin can still be approximate with staples if needed. Typically, wounds in this location require a longer time, so suture or staple removal should happen after 10 to 14 days. Britt, what are some cannot miss diagnoses when it comes down to laceration repair? We're going to finish with some important complications. Open fractures and open joints should be confirmed on physical exam and imaging. These patients need immediate antibiotics and specialist consultation for the OR. Compartment syndrome can be confirmed with physical exam and history. These patients need fasciotomy. Tendon injury can be confirmed with history and exam, and they may need imaging. You should talk these patients over with your specialist. For patients with vascular injury, confirm with inspection, control the bleeding, obtain imaging, and talk these patients over with your vascular surgeon. Foreign bodies can be diagnosed with visual inspection and imaging. Not all require removal if the search risks damage to surrounding structures. Small, inert, deep, or asymptomatic foreign bodies can potentially stay. Remove all reactive or contaminated foreign bodies. Nerve injuries can be diagnosed on physical exam. Assess these injuries before and after repair, and these patients need specialist follow-up. Muscle injuries can be diagnosed with physical exam and imaging. Many of these patients need repair to recover function. Splint the patient in functional position and follow up with a specialist. Human bites can be diagnosed based on history and visual inspection. These patients always need antibiotics, as well as wound check follow-up. That rounds out our summary of the key MDOCS posts. Thanks for joining us on this podcast and stay tuned for our next episode. Feel free to comment on our site and let us know if you have any feedback. Stay safe and healthy, everyone.